0: You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection Streaming Video Service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is friend of the show, Michael Hutchins. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today to continue our conversation on the films of Carlos Saura.
1: Thanks, Joshua. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get get, up, get more into his films from his seconds, second decade of filmmaking.
0: I know, I
1: know. Well, before we do that, let's do just a quick check-in. How have things been going for you? Going very well. Just hanging in there, trying to keep cool, of course, like everybody else in the world, I suppose. Yes. But, uh, other than that, watching movies and uh, just uh, enjoying during my retirement you now. Yes. <laughs> of course, I say that now. I'm, now I've been now been retired for 13 years. So yeah.
0: <laughs> so you're just now starting to enjoy
1: no, your retired. No, no, that- no. I'm saying I'm saying that as if I had just as if I had just retired. Yeah. But believe oh. it, I take I take advantage of, of retired life.
0: Yes, yes. Well, I I have noticed that you have uh, been doing a lot uh, recently with Criterion's kind of digging into the history of Janice films. Yes. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about what prompted that kind of deep dive into exploring the history of Janice and and what's been going on in their their past?
1: I think what instigated it was in the last year, I've noticed that Janice has gone back into distributing more often, more modern films, contemporary films. Mm. And of course, this new line is is an attestment to that. And I think it was somewhere at the beginning of the year. And also, I was instigated by trying to bring some content to Keith's group, Criterion Completion, on yeah. Facebook. Yeah. So I was adding some content to that. And it was almost like I went down the rabbit hole, and that, that pretty much led me into doing research online, just to finding out. The history of janice films and come across some log interesting stuff i do have a, uh, maybe a couple dozen dozen lists on letterbox and if you read the notes especially the head notes and the notes to the individual films i would think it's a pretty concise but pretty detailed history of, of janice films the distributor yeah. we all we all love
0: what are like one or two things that you've found that have been really fun to discover
1: Well, what I discovered was Janice Films almost didn't exist. From 56 to 65, it was the leader in distributing art house films to America. And then by 65, when the Hollywood Studios came in and kind of bought them out of the business by licensing films from Europe and Japan, that they they couldn't compete with with those pockets. So a couple of guys came in and said, let's turn it around. And they did. And that's the persons we all know, Saul Terrell and, and William Becker. Yeah. The, the fathers of the two men who now own Janus Films and the Criterion Collection.
0: That's great. Again, the history of these things, we think of it as being the static thing that we know now and yeah. kind of love now. Or mm-hmm. maybe if those of us who are old enough maybe remember the Laserdisc days.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I remember the days when they first started showing films on public television stations back in the '70s. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was Janus Films who introduced me to the whole world of art house. Even though I didn't know it, there was always that that logo at the beginning of the film. It was a blue background with a yellow Janus logo. <laughs> if you can recall that, these days it's, it's probably ugly compared to the one they used for the last thirty years. But yeah. back in the '70s, that was the logo. And that was the one that introduced me to the 400 Blows and Grand Illusion and, you know, yeah. uh, and that's and that's where I fell in love with, uh, with Art House through no, Janice Films licensing to public television stations. That's great.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And uh, oh, definitely good. make sure to check out Michael's... Uh, Letterboxed lists because there is uh, so much really great information there about the history of Janus films and uh, really the roots of what we know as the Criterion Collection. Well, before we really dig into our conversation on Carlos Sara. I do want to make sure to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thanks for making sure that the show can happen. I really do appreciate that. If you want to support the show, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. Supporters get early access to episodes and you also get the Patreon bonus content on every episode. Michael and I just spent a good hour talking about Mm -hmm. the July releases for the Criterion channel. And we're recording this on the day that uh, Criterion announced the Janus Contemporaries line and uh, or the the first three titles that were going to be released. And uh, we spent some time talking about that as well. We also spent time talking about what we're watching and we get some really great conversation in there about a lot of different uh, subjects related to film. So, definitely uh if you're interested in that type of extra conversation the the patreon feed is the way to get that so um,
1: yeah some great content there so so make sure you become a patreon patron yes
0: yes, definitely and uh so yeah you can do that again at patreon.com slash josh hornbeck all right well let's continue to have this conversation about carlos saura this is our the third part of our conversation in part one we talked about The Hunt, Peppermint Frappe, and Stresses Three. In part two, we talked about Honeycomb, The Garden of Delight, and Anna in the Wolves. And now we're going to be talking about three different films, Cousin Angelica, Elisa Vida Mia, and Los Ojos Vendados. And I think it's really interesting, Michael, because you know, in the first three films, there was this interesting focus, I think, on masculinity and on kind of deconstructing almost masculinity. Mm -hmm. In the second three films, we have these three films that explore isolation, uh, explore relationships and people trapped within oppressive systems and family units. And here we go now into three new films that yeah. really uh, seem to me to be about memory and, yes. and the ways that memory kind of surfaces unbidden and the way that memory blends with imagination and fantasy and the way that our, our memories are sometimes distorted. And it, so it's, it's a really intriguing the just the shift throughout his career into telling these different types of stories.
1: Yeah, that was the first thing that I felt whenever I saw these three. I, was, I saw them again last night, yeah, and this morning, and uh, the first the first thing I had in my notes is memory, it, and they, they do share these things in common. Also, the women seem to kind of step forward a little bit, yeah, the, than in his earlier films. These three, especially yeah. uh especially cousin Angelica and Las Olas. Uh, Vendados, yeah. even, even though no, I'm sorry, uh, Elie, uh, Elisa Delamia yeah. and Los Ojos Vendados, the the last two, and both starring Geraldine Chaplin,
0: yeah,
1: uh, his muse, his his partner at this time, who wasn't in Cousin Angelica, I suspect because at the time she was making Nashville with Robert Alton. Mm-hmm. so I'm not sure if it's, if uh, maybe she could have played the part of Cousin Angelica at the time. Yeah. I can see I can see her doing that, and I can see Anna Torrent playing playing her as a child too. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah.
1: And, yeah. But we'll we'll get that in the later films. Yeah. Those, that, that pairing.
0: Yeah. Well, and also during this time period, in between Cousin Angelica and Elisa Vida Mia, this is also when Cria Cuervos was oh, made, yes. and that's his. You know, what is generally considered to be his masterpiece, right? Yeah. It's the one that Criterion has released on disc in the mainline, and it's the one we won't be talking about today because we're focused on these these films that are only available streaming.
1: But, but I, it's a great companion to, to these films, especially uh, yeah. the way it was filmed in between these these films.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think we also chart the course throughout these three films, of the we see the the beginning of the end of francoism yes. and up into those those first early years and i think that's that's interesting too that we're in this kind of pivot moment within yeah. spain and i think that's that's fascinating to chart over the course of these four films really yeah. but uh, the three that we're going to talk about
1: well, because the first one here, Cousin Angelica, it seems to me the the one that, that's more explicit mm-hmm. in its in its depiction of Franco, Spain. The others kind of move, move away from it. But of course, at that time, Franco was dead and, yep. and the, the new republic had started. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into uh, Cousin Angelica and really kind of dig into this this first one here. We have our one of our 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 favorite actors uh, jose Mm -hmm. luis lopez vasquez from the garden of delight who is on his way to take his mother's bones to the family crypt and Mm -hmm. as he drives along the road he stops and gets out of the car to look at the city off in the distance and as the camera pans around him suddenly his car is an old 1930s car Mm -hmm. and his mother and father come out of the car to meet him and he still is himself as a middle-aged man but they treat him as if he's a child and he steps into his memories there and we this is something we see happen time and time again in the course of the film is that he enters his memories in this really just incredibly fluid way as he is brought back to this pivotal time in his life when Mm -hmm. his parents took him to visit family uh, far away from him in the middle of the Spanish civil war. And it's a, it's a time when he fell in love with his cousin who was around his age. There was a, bombing at the school he attended and several boys died. He discovers that his father is reviled by the rest of the family because yeah. the family were Francoists. Yeah. And his father
1: was the Republican. He yeah. was fighting for the Republican. Yeah.
0: And so you have all of this kind of this this tension that is that's happening mm-hmm. throughout the, the film as he explores his attraction to his cousin who's now grown up and married you have the Mm -hmm. the cousin angelica her husband begins to play the part of the cousin's father his uncle Mm -hmm. in the past sequences as well the cousin Uh, as an adult plays the role i believe of the ant in the past as well Mm -hmm. and you just you have this this interesting blend of past and present and you you really see how these these traumas from the past when when they're shaken loose can really invade and permeate our our daily lives Mm -hmm. and i mean it's just it's a haunting film i think this this to me is my favorite of the three that you know talk about
1: yeah i I agree it is it's my favorite of the three as well i had saw it last year when it first came to the channel and so watching again this time i was aware of the conceit. And this conceit, I'd never seen it done by any other director of film, by having mm-hmm. the adult actor play himself. You know, and these moments uh, of triggering these memories, yeah. I was more aware yeah. that they were going to happen, and so I kind of tried to pay attention to what triggered these memories. And what you what I learned is that almost every sense along the way is a trigger. For yeah. instance, the first one is like a location. He's out there mm-hmm. in the middle of the of the uh, the desert. And he stops the car, and I guess just the location itself is what triggers it. And then other times, like he hears a song on the radio, and another one, he, he drinks a cup of tea, and that triggers a memory. So it's it's all yeah. these senses. With each step back into his childhood, there are these triggers. Yeah. And, and, and he makes an analogy of that, and actually says it out, you know, as the character about Proust's cupcake, mm-hmm. which is Marcel Proust wrote about how even something like the taste of a cupcake can bring back a memory.
0: Yeah, and I think there is this lovely fluidity to the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels so natural. It honestly reminds me of like a theater piece in some mm-hmm. ways. This is the type of thing that I might see on stage. My background in theater, if I was directing something that had to do with memory, you know, you would have the actor play the same character at different mm-hmm. points in the person's life. and yeah. And... You just don't get that as often in cinema i'm trying to think now
1: i can't think of of, of ever being used that way you can see it being used like to bring back memories and you see the person as a younger version of themselves yeah but not really as themselves you know and so it but the 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 transitions are so natural so smooth that Mm -hmm. that it 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 can be almost you're not really sure exactly where you're at you know like at a, a certain at any certain moment Is this here? Is this there? Was this then? Is this now? Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's disorienting at times, right? That's Um, that's good. I think about the, there's a sequence where he and his cousin are on the roof. Oh, yes. That to me is the one that, that stands out to me the most. You know, so over the course of the film, he has been staying at a hotel and he buries his mother and is getting ready to leave, but he decides to come back. because there's just a lure that he, he can't quite leave and so he stays with his aunt yes. and his cousin and her family live below and over the course of this time together he and the cousin get closer and they they reconnect in some ways mm-hmm. and well she's as in they, an
1: unhappy marriage so it's it's just yes. a way of also i guess she's maybe going through these same things about these memories of her childhood at a time, yeah. even though it was a time of trauma during the war, it was a time when uh, there was a connection between her and her cousin.
0: Yeah. And they they, they sit on the roof together and share a kiss. Yeah. And suddenly we hear the cousin's husband calling out to Luis, the, the main character. And for a moment we think, oh no, the, the husband has caught them and there's gonna yeah. be a reckoning. Mm-hmm. But
1: but then the husband becomes Angelica's father.
0: Exactly. And and he's calling
1: Angelica in and you notice it in
0: in Luis's performance first because it's this this moment where he stops being the middle aged man and just in the way he carries himself in the look on his face, he suddenly becomes the nine year old, 11 year old boy that he was back then the way he stoops and carries himself the way he shuffles it's just this brilliant performance by him that that does remind me of his performance in the Garden of Delights but it's so precise everything that he's he's doing he's very
1: expressive just just everything in in his eyes in that particular scene do you think that once he's called in by his uncle well his, his cousin's father yes yeah. yes that would be his uncle right yeah uh does he leave the attic or, or is he he must be standing there waiting for the other the elder angelica to come into the attic from the roof because when we see the younger angelica wa- walks in that that is the moment that just a brilliant moment probably yeah. one of my most except for the last shot of the film that's probably one of my, my most brilliant just just moments of the film mm.
0: yeah Yeah, it's really remarkable the way that this moves and lets us sit with the way memories can consume us while we're preoccupied with something. Uh, Again, I think that so many of his films are about Spain's desire to forget. They're about the desire to not acknowledge the past. Yes. And so being unable not to... Yeah, and and so when the past just comes rushing back in, it's a flood of emotion. It's a flood of terror at times. It's really, really. I think this this is one of those films that captures uh, so many of the the themes and ideas and concerns that Saur has been trying to explore for so much of his career.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the the scenes in the church where the where the priest is talking about how eternity, how long eternity is, for that child who never was saved because yeah. of what happened to him, and he died before he could be saved. You yeah. know, that's, that's just a haunting scene. And then
0: yeah.
1: and what's unusual is you see that scene first from a different point of view at the very beginning of the film. You don't know what's going on, and yeah. it looks very performative. It's almost like yeah, uh, the camera set up. We're going to film this scene where the explosion takes place, where the bomb drops, and we see the children's reaction, but then we see it like they are actors actually going through the scenes as director Sora is going through the motions. And then we see it again in his memory as part of him going back into the school in that yeah. that lecture by the priest. Yeah. Oh, God, and then the, the dream he has about that tortured nun. Yeah,
0: <laughs> wow. yeah yeah it's a lot of great it's, scenes. it's it's a it's it's a really remarkable film yeah i'm really struck by again the performances and and how many little digs are added in throughout there's the the moment of one of the the sequences in the past in which uh, angelica's father has broken his arm at the front or has injured his arm and his, his, his arm is now in a cast that is mimicking the fascist salute oh, yes. And so it's it's very funny, but it's also really chilling at the same time. Yeah. So you get all of these little these little moments there uh, that are really really chilling and very darkly comic as well.
1: Well, I know you researched reaction to the film. I, di- I didn't go that far into it, but this didn't seem as implicit a- attack on Franco than in others films were, but from reading your notes, uh, you can tell us what, you know, what was the audience reaction to this, to this film?
0: Yeah. So uh, just in, in doing a little bit of research on it. So it had already passed the censors. They had done some cuts. There wasn't much censorship at this point in the in Franco's regime, but there was enough that they had to tone a few things down. But once it was released, it was just, there was just angry vitriol from the right-wing press condemning the film, condemning Saura, condemning everyone involved with making this film happen. Then violent mobs. Uh, stormed theaters in one case they stole reels of the film from the projection booth <laughs> there was one cinema that was burned down toward the end of its run and so the film was actually pulled from circulation People were pressuring the producer to cut scenes, especially the one in which the father was shown to have his arm plastered with the fascist salute. Mm. So there are all of these things that were going on at the time. Mm. It was chosen to represent Spain at Cannes, and the right-wing press took that as a a slap in the face. They took that as an affront. (laughs) And when the jury at Cannes found out all of the things that Sauer was going through, they decided to award him a special award for the film. So, yeah, it was a pretty... The reaction was incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. I, again, I think that for us, looking at this with you know our Western democratic hindsight, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it's very incendiary. But I do think that you know even though it doesn't have some of that deep symbolic resonance of things like anna and the wolves or the garden of delight yeah. but I, I think that the fact that they were openly referencing the civil war and yeah. openly talking about the conflict yes um and and talking about the ways in which people were pitted against each other yeah. and and that it wasn't it didn't have this triumphant tone to it. Mm-hmm. I imagine that that's part of the 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 issue that a lot of the fascists had against
1: mm-hmm. it. And that reminds me, they didn't actually say in the film why it took him twenty years for him to, to be able to move his mother's remains back to the family crypt. But now I think about it at that time, because her husband was a Republican during the war. Yeah, she was probably outcast from the family as well, yeah. and that's why it took that long. For her dying wish to actually be fulfilled which is what we see at at the beginning he brings her bones back back to the family crib in segovia yeah
0: so this is a a really beautiful film really haunting i know for me it got me to think and reflect on the ways that we can become obsessed with memory i know we've talked a little bit around the plot but i think it's it's a film that is more about atmosphere
1: yeah uh, and I, I don't see much much a plot there either. When yeah. you think about it.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think it it really it creates a mood and a a tone that I think is really rich, and so yeah, I I love this film so much. This is one that I know it's it's not one that that a lot of people talk about, but this one just blew me away.
1: Great. Well, if you if you like the actor, he's in a lot of Berlanga films that are on the channel. Yes. Yes. And so he, he has this kind of everyman face like he's put upon, you know, like like he's the one that everybody's picking on him. But but he can, he has some great performances in Berlanga's films. So yeah. So so check him out if you get a chance.
0: Yeah. Well, again, the very next film that Sarah made was Cria Cuervos. After Criacuervos, he made a film, Elisa Mia*, which we have uh, Geraldine Chaplin back, and uh, she stars alongside Fernando Rey. Michael, do you want to touch on the plot uh, for this?
1: Yeah, Fernando Rey plays a writer who's been separated from his family for a number of years. He had left them uh, when his children were young, his two daughters— uh, although they keep in touch, there have been, if this case, I think it's been seven years since the daughter Elisa has, has seen her father. And the news has come down that, that he's become ill and he's living in this isolated kind of farmhouse out in the middle of these fields, which are never sown, but they're plowed. You, you, I'm sure you notice that. But he, mm-hmm. he's out there in the middle by himself. And, and so the sister and her husband and Elisa, the, the younger daughter, they decide to go see him. Well, at a certain point, Elisa accepts her father's invitation to stay with him. I guess and, and probably a need to connect, knowing that maybe he won't be around long. And also we also learn that she's having trouble with her husband, who she suspects is having an affair. And so this is a way for her to also to kind of pull back from that and look at it from a from a different perspective. But together, whether or not they connect is, is something, you know, that there there are there are times when they they, they do make a connection, but you can still see the hurt that she has for being deserted by her father. In this case, Fernando Reyes, he's amazing. You know, we all know him from the Bunuel films at this time. He was like the go-to actor for Bunuel. But yeah. uh, looking at this film, and I think I've discussed with earlier films by Sora that, that they have this Bunuelian quality to them. But if anything, Elisa viomita it's his Bergman film, if you ask me. Mm. It, it reminds me so much of Autumn Sonata, In that there's a connection between a a reconnection between a parent and a child, as we had in that Bergman film, and this seems to be of the same same cut. Yeah, I think
0: once again, you know, we have these memories and fantasies intruding and and poking their their heads up throughout. Mm -hmm. We get our first taste of that really when Elisa describes at their celebration with their father uh, a dream that she had about having dinner with their parents and there being an earthquake or a, a rumbling and yeah. describing the tea set and then you know the sister says well, you know the, the tea set we had wasn't like that it was like this yeah. and they go and look at yeah. the the things but again, we have this, this idea of kind of the slipperiness of identity, too, nice. where uh, Geraldine Chaplin plays both Elisa and their mother. Yes. And I also found what I found really fascinating about this film was how it would slip into memory or it would slip into fantasy. And it took a moment for us to know and to orient ourselves to whose perspective we were in. Yes. Were we in Luisa's memory, the father's memory, or were we in Elisa's memory? Right. And it's compounded by the fact that he's writing this book, right? That he claims is a memoir. Right.
1: But uh, not told from his point of view.
0: Exactly, it's told from her point of yes. view. Yes, yes. And it opens the film opens with this narration read by a man about you know i hadn't seen my father in seven years and when my family told me he was sick i decided i'd go out and visit him and it was a good way for me to get away from my relationship and Mm -hmm. so you think at least me when i'm watching it i've thought thinking okay we're gonna meet a man who's getting away from his His, his estranged wife Mm -hmm. and then you realize no this is actually her story he's writing this from her perspective yeah In which and which she
1: accidentally just she goes to his room and, and starts reading it without yeah. his knowledge you
0: know? yeah and i think the thing for me that i found really fascinating was that yeah you know, she does actually have a a moment to confront her spouse her husband antonio mm-hmm. one of her biggest frustrations and complaints to him is that he doesn't understand her he doesn't know who she is. And the moments that we see her reading her father's manuscript, there isn't the sense, at least I don't get the sense that she's angry, that she feels like she's being violated or that her privacy has been violated, but that she actually feels like her father took the time to try to understand her.
1: Yeah. Here's someone who understands me. And that's. And try to come back. Yeah, right.
0: Try to get who she was as a person, which is something that that her husband was, who had been with her for so long, refused to do, and uh, and I find that really compelling.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's it's something about the narration itself that's kind of jarring to start with, yeah. but then when you get into it, and then it's it's being read by a man, but at this point, as it goes along, you know it's from her point of view. So that's another conceit by Sora that I've never known anyone else to use in their yeah. films.
0: Well, and that narration is then repeated multiple times yes. mm-hmm. throughout the film and it alternates who's reading it. Sometimes it's Geraldine Chaplin reading it. Sometimes it's Fernando Ray reading it. And again, it's that, that kind of slipperiness. This is a film that I know that for me, I need to rewatch a few more times mm-hmm. because I think that there are, there are so many other layers to it. And and it'll be the same for the next film too. That I think that th- these are films that he's continuing to play with consciousness, with memory. There are so many little moments of fantasy. Oh yes, well, uh, actually,
1: there's quite a few. The more yeah. the, when I saw it this time, it I didn't have m- many scenes of fantasy there are, especially when it comes to corpses, bodies, yep. identifications yeah. of bodies. Uh, yeah. Actual killings and, and it's just remarkable about uh, is whose fantasies are they? Is these Elisa's fantasies? Yeah. You know, a yeah. couple of them, of course, you can identify as as being hers, but then there's the one about her mother, believing her mother after her husband disappeared. Well, Elisa's father had disappeared, going and identifying a body, which is obviously Fernando Ray. We know that's Luis right yeah. there. Yeah, but she denies that's her husband. So it's yeah. almost at that point, is it Elise's fantasy that, well, maybe her father had been dead all along, you know, and yeah. in her mind, uh, it's not because he abandoned his family. He just was unable to come back because yeah. he was murdered, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think about the sequence in which it feels like the story is almost starting over again, too. And suddenly we're in the city and
1: oh yeah that, and, that, and she, yeah.
0: she goes up the elevator to go stay with her father as he's on his deathbed mm-hmm. and everything is there there are all of these really carefully plotted out moments where
1: yeah.
0: we dip into fiction and
1: it's like a fantasy or, or a projection of how she may imagine the end of her father's life yeah, is that she will yeah. have taken him in that they would have forgiven each other She's going to be yeah. there when he dies, you know, yeah. and she does sit by his bed as he dies. But then we realize, oh, that didn't happen. That's not that's not happening right now.
0: Yeah, or is it also, you know, this is part of the the story that that Luis is writing. Is this Very the, true. Yeah. is this the narrative that he's trying to craft here at the end of his life?
1: Oh, because not to get too involved in the ending is Elisa actually takes up where the father left off and yeah. she, does, she does finish the narrative. Yeah. Or attempts to, you know, so, so maybe in a way the narrative that maybe he had wanted or as she imagined of him coming and staying with her and dying there was the way he wanted to end his yeah. memoir.
0: Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of really, there are a lot of really interesting things here about trying to connect, trying to be understood, trying to... Find your place. I don't think that the movement between fantasy and reality is quite as successful as it is in My Cousin Angelica. Mm -hmm. But watching it again, doing another run through Sarah's work might change my mind on that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot here. It's a film filled with some really rich performances that I think it, it deserves some some more viewings.
1: Yeah, it's it's really quite complex the the structure of the film. Yeah, the, the narrative it it isn't you know, like a straight through just a just plain just story being told straight through. Yeah. did you did you notice uh, the use of music in the film?
0: I'm not yeah. sure that I could pick the music out.
1: Well, it, it I'm not sure if this is one who uses Purcell's music or not, but there is some operatic scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but then and you for instance there's a scene where he's writing and you hear his narration, he's writing, yeah. and in the background you hear the, the the score, classical music or some kind of uh operatic score, and all of a sudden he reaches over and cuts off the cassette.
0: Yeah. And
1: you realize the mu- the music which goes from non-diegetic to diegetic in, a, in an yeah. instant.
0: Yeah. That
1: happens three times in the film. Yeah. Where you think the music is like just the musical score of the film, and you realize the actual character is actually playing music. There's another scene in her apartment in the city where the music is playing and it's coming to a crescendo. And she reaches over and turns off the radio. And then you have just that sudden silence, you know? Yeah. And he also does that a number of times in the next one we're going to talk about. Yes, yes. Uh, Los Ojos Vandados, yeah.
0: Yeah, I noticed that as well. And there's also some interesting things with performance here, too. We're beginning to move into a phase of his career where performance becomes more a feature in his films. That's, that's one
1: of my notes for the next film. I uh, call it performance as narrative.
0: Yeah. you know, And we start to see the first glimpses of it here as Luis is teaching a, a class oh, of yeah. school children right. and directing them in a play. And when he gets ill, Elisa takes over for the kids. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's one more layer here that and the story itself is about the idea that the maker of all gives everybody their role to play Yeah, and gives, you know, basically tells the the poor person, sorry, this is this is what your role is. You yeah. don't get to. This is your life. Yeah. You don't get to change that. And there's a, a fatalism that's embedded in this play. And in some ways, there's this this question of. As they're looking and reflecting on their past and in the fantasies of what could be or what could happen, could their lives have been any different?
1: Yeah. Or is this the roles that they've taken and have to accept?
0: Yeah. I'm wondering whether that piece, as small as it is, whether that isn't part of the key to understanding this film.
1: Possibly, because I, I could yeah. I couldn't tie it into the rest of the story. But now now that you speak of that, it, it, it seems like that that could be a key to what's happening. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. All right. Well, the last film that we're going to talk about today is Los Ojos Vendados, which when I was logging it yesterday on Letterboxd, I think it has like thirty reviews. So it's it's one that is just not very widely seen today. Mm-hmm. it's it seems to be one that has fallen by the wayside for the most part as i was doing research it was really hard to find much mm-hmm. about it so i i did find a little bit oh and before i go on too much sorry for breaking things but alisa viva did compete at can and fernando Rey did win best actor at yeah. can for it so you know again the performances in that are pretty stellar
1: mm-hmm. oh yeah. at this point um I think uh, Elisa Vitamia is the high point in Geraldine Chaplin's career. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with that work at all, but yeah. it, but watching these films and this series, I, I've really come to appreciate her work, and this seems to be the height of, of her of her career as yeah. far as, you know, these films we're talking about. Even well, though if, she's, she's also in Los Olos Vandados, and she's very good in that, Yeah, but there's just something about uh, Elisa Vitamia that really strikes me as a great performance.
0: No, I will agree with you. I think, as I was taking notes on it, I was struck by how how much she conveys in those nonverbal moments mm-hmm. in just a, a look or a glance. there's a at times a hesitancy or an eagerness or a a longing, a a reticence i she is really conveying this wide range of emotions through simple looks through simple glances I, it's it's a stellar performance i completely agree with you on that all right well let's get into this last film that we're going to talk about today los ojos Vendados. This is another one that I think is really interesting in the ways that it, again, explores memory. It pushes this this idea of performance, I think, a little further uh, exactly. than the last one. It's, it's all set around a performance. But to me, this is one that, that I, I think I struggled with a little bit more yes. than the other two and uh, i i'm not sure that i quite followed all of the shifts between the present and the past and the the fantasies and it just it it was a harder one to track all of the different layers that were going on there. So again, this is one that I think will benefit from another viewing. This is one that again, hasn't really been viewed a whole lot. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a film that is, is made, is talked about a lot in Sour's filmography. Mm-hmm. It was entered into the, the Cannes film festival. So it, it's, it's had a little bit of play there, but I think that by that point in Saur's career, most everything that he made was entered into Cannes. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: Osaris was practically making a film a year at this point. Yeah, um,
0: exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is this is an interesting film. the The little bit that I've been able to find about this, there's there's not much out there about uh, Los Ojos Vendados, but uh, the inspiration for the film uh, there's there seems to be two uh, sources of inspiration. One was uh, that Saura attended a hearing about human rights abuses in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And you see the the main character in this, Luis. And so he he attended this this hearing. and so this this character, Luis, is at, at the very beginning of the film is attending a hearing on human rights abuses in Latin America. And then there was also an attack on uh, Saura's son by far-right sympathizers after the death of franco and uh, the film is actually dedicated to his son as well so all of that seems to have been in the mix as Saura was beginning to craft this and i don't know about you but as i'm watching this it struck me as this this might be one of sara's angriest films since you know, Anna and the wolves
1: i can see that it's just that i just don't think that he had his ducks all lined up yeah as far as he has been able to to take all these disparate influences of what may have instigated him to make the film, that they just don't come together in the end, you know. And I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I just don't think the ending is justified by what we see before it, you know.
0: Yeah, I but, think I think yeah. the ending works for me, but I definitely I, I think that there are these little tangents that happen that distracted me from the mm-hmm. thrust of the film so the major portion of the film is is about Louis, as he's beginning to create this play based on the hearings that he's attended a friend of his she's the wife of his dentist but he also seems to be friends with both of them she decides that she wants to become an actress and he recommends that she stops by his studio where he teaches acting so she does and And she's clearly out of her depth. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's, she's not quite able to connect with her emotions as much as some of the other students are, but she's making a go of it. And because she's doing these classes, her husband gets uh, incredibly angry and beats her and she leaves the house and says, I'm going to go move in with Luis and goes to Luis's house And uh, the two of them begin an affair and begin a relationship.
1: That's, I think, a turning point in the film that made me think, well, what is Sora doing here? Because at a certain point in that whole night of her coming over and being so, so distressed about what happened to her, at a certain point, she looks at him in the eye and she said, well, how is that? Almost like she was performing. And he says, yeah, that was a great dialogue. Well, was all of that a fantasy? Was it made up? Or was, or was only that por- that portion of it the actual fantasy part? That the showing how a good an actress she yeah. is. Because we know that, that she's not that good an actress uh, to begin with. Or we don't know if she ever really does become a great actress. But it seems like from that point on, everything she does is performative. It's like... Yeah. Like she, she may not be a good actress on stage, but she can perform in her life. Her character uh, takes on this I don't know, this victim role maybe. I'm not sure. I'm you know, and I don't put all women who are subjected to spousal abuse in that category. But in this case, I'm really not certain if what what she says happens really happened. You know. And so yeah. I I mean how, how do you, how do you take that? I mean, I know they they, they they do start the affair. But it, is, it, is it because, you know, of, of what happened between her and husband? Because we don't know it. We don't have any evidence of this. And again, I don't be the person who says, you know, yeah. uh, it's a he said, she said thing because we never hear him say whatever. We just hear a one-sided telephone call and that's about it, you
0: know. You know, that's an interesting read on it. There isn't as much fantasy here. And so I think I'm, I'm predisposed toward taking –
1: Taking it
0: for real. Yeah, taking it at face value.
1: What about the three different times in the movie they meet for the first time?
0: Now that to, <laughs> me, that to me is, there are these little, little moments that are challenging for me, right? right yeah. There's a moment where he's driving down the road and has severe pain and gets out of the, his car and lies down. And I don't know if that is a moment where we dip into the his memories, Mm -hmm. and it's the time that she and her husband met him for the first time. That or
1: another great scene is the scene in the coal shop, and I think that's probably one of my favorite scenes in the film. Where he kind of reverts to his childhood, yeah, and he meets her for the first time there as another, uh, you know, another customer in the shop.
0: And that one, that one, to me, felt more. That one didn't. That one felt more like the a uh, bit of It's uh,
1: Like he is. Oh, he's putting her into his memory, or you, or you think in this case, uh, she did come in there and and they were performing for the shop owner.
0: I think at the beginning they were performing for the shop owner. Okay. Uh, as they leave the house together, and he goes to visit his old employer, yeah. and he's just finished, you know, telling her about his past. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and confronts his old shop owner And talks about the conditions there But says, you know, don't worry, you were a really good boss Mm -hmm. And she goes in and plays the role of a customer Mm -hmm. And in the present, he says No, we don't have any of these, you know, uh, olive pit charcoal We don't have any of this Mm -hmm. charcoal really anymore Mm -hmm. And then when he goes back down into the The coal pit. That's when he descends into his memories again. But again, I think that those are the two moments that I was thinking of actually, which felt like tangents that never quite connected us back to the narrative. But there was that
1: transition in the shower, remember? Where he's living with he's living with his aunt, his older aunt. At that time, he's supposed to be like fifteen years old. Yeah, he's getting out of the shower, and his aunt starts rubbing him down. Yeah, and so, but but he's being played by the adult actor. Mm-hmm. You know, just like we saw in yeah. uh, in yeah, my yeah. cousin Angelica, yes, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was another moment that that again never quite. That whole sequence felt very disconnected from the main thrust of the film because we're not really digging into his memories for much of the film.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that would have been a fascinating take. His mm-hmm. story about his childhood and and his his like becoming uh, almost like a a servant, you know, or, or like almost like a Dickensian character, you know, yeah. ha- having to build his way up out of his poverty, you know. Well, and I think that
0: yeah, there there may be something in there. Again, with with more viewings, there may be something in there about this comes all after this idea of sense memory and Mm -hmm. describing a a sense and describing what it is to go through your memories and to, to express your memories. And, Mm -hmm. you know, many of these, these class sequences feel like maybe more uh, grounded versions of things you'd find in out one at times or shorter versions of that at times. And so there is this, this sense of, of trying to help people understand Help the 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 other actors understand what it is to really get into that emotional core of what what makes a memory important for acting something on stage. But well, I,
1: I, I can see that. But I just wish somehow just, yeah. it just it didn't work for me. I'm, yeah, I'm,
0: it it never connected to yeah. the main thrust of the the dual narratives, which the mm-hmm. two narratives that we're really following are his relationship with amelia Mm -hmm. and the attempts to produce this play Mm -hmm. which we haven't even really discussed the fact that he's being threatened constantly
1: oh yes and that's Uh, that's basically i guess the plot of it that that eventually plays itself out but it's something that that's kind of pushed aside throughout the film that you feel like it's just not that important because you've got the story of the actual creation of the play and then you've got his relationship but
0: yeah, because mm-hmm. he's given these these notes saying, you know, stop what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want you talking about mm-hmm. this. You've we been
1: don't... this is your last
0: chance. Yeah, and that is the the real kind of crux mm-hmm. of what he's pushing against there. And I know that, that part of what, what I think Sauer is attempting to do is explore, again, this idea of the ways that memory... You can't help but have memories come to the surface and you know, this, this post Franco period was what they call both the, the, the left and the right entered into what they called a pact of forgetting. Yes. Where they chose to not mention the atrocities and the horrors of the Franco regime, and they chose to ignore it and to, to just move on and put everything terrible that happened during that time aside.
1: Well, maybe it was the it was the freedom during this period that maybe he he didn't have the restrictions he had under Franco, yeah. which means he had to be more creative in how he developed his story. Yeah. And the freedom that he was allowed in nineteen seventy eight when he was making Los Ojos Mendados really he, he needed something else to kinda be able to to build that narrative on. And when he could be explicit, like in the story about the the, the terrorism, he didn't he didn't have to be creative about presenting it. Present he yeah. could just present it and, and the audience would have to accept it. He didn't have to work with metaphors or symbols or anything. It was there, you know.
0: Yeah, and I, yeah. I don't even mind the fact that he was explicit with that. I think that to me is the, the stuff that I found most powerful in the film. I think that for me, that was really like the the gut punch in the film, and where I sense his anger and this this idea that, look, I've been I've been told to keep my mouth shut for all of my life, and you're telling me I have to still keep my mouth shut, you know.
1: Well, wouldn't that have made a great film. I mean, I'm talking about yeah. that story. I think, you know, but yeah. but bring in a relationship. Yeah, the, You know, the, the extramural affair just didn't seem uh, to fit. The pieces didn't fit together for me.
0: Yeah, I think this, the things that were working for me in this were, were her attempts to connect with the material. And I think that we see that in the, the rehearsal that she has mm-hmm. as she's having a difficult time. And I think Geraldine Chaplin gives a great performance. There. Oh, she's, it
1: does come across there. You can see it, the struggle... She's yeah. acting as someone who's trying to act. And that's yeah. got to be terrible. I yeah. mean, it's got to be something very hard to do.
0: Yeah. It reminded
1: me of Mulholland Drive, the character Betty. Yeah. And we know she's not a very good actor because throughout the first half hour of the film, we can see her struggling to act. And then the moment she gets into that room where she's auditioning, my God, we mm-hmm. see that she is an amazing actress. You yeah, You know? Yeah. And so in this case... You can see Chaplin's struggle to, I mean, her really wanting to, to be able to, to fit in with this crowd of young actors, but just not being able to connect to the method or, or whatever the system is he's using to teach them how to get in touch with their feelings.
0: Yeah. And I think specifically as she's working on the monologue, about the atrocities that happened to the character that she's playing. Mm-hmm. There's that moment where she says, "I, you know, this is so horrible. I, I, I don't know if I can say this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's something there, too, about that desire to kind of sanitize and clean up the atrocities. How awful and how horrific some of the things were that happened during this time. Under Franco, you know, even though there, she's playing someone from a, a Latin American country that was under a dictatorship. Sarah's so making this explicit connection between what yes. happened there and what happened under Franco. So you you see this this woman being confronted. You know, she lived this middle class life. She lived this kind of bourgeois life for so much mm-hmm. of her time, mm-hmm. and to now be kind of immersed in this artist's milieu with younger people, with people that are not part of your your normal social circle. I think maybe that's part of what he's getting at is, is showing this person now having to confront the realities of what happened while she was living the high life during Franco. Again, I think there are all of these things that are there, but the connections don't fully make it on screen.
1: Well, I, I suppose her being able to the difficulty she would have, I'm talking about Emilia, her difficulty yeah. to actually play a role, as you said, of someone who who is was never part of her life, yeah, and knowing that the part she's playing really happened to someone, someone yeah. who who was one of the uh, witnesses at the investigation, you know yeah. and in this case, we never see her face. She's always hidden behind glasses. Yeah. But you know who plays that part. Carmen Laura. The star of a lot of uh, films by Amadovar.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, I,
1: I recognized her voice and her cheekbones. You know, yeah, <laughs> there's just yeah. something about her. And so, for a second there, whenever uh, we see Geraldine Chaplin playing the same part, but but in the actual play reconstruction of that of that scene. Yeah. Then then I, oh yeah, I, but you come to the camera comes to her from behind, so you think you're going back to that memory mm-hmm. of, of the investigation. Then you realize no, that that is Amelia, and she's now performing the role. Yeah. That she can now actually connect, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, we get these flashes, right, of Amelia as this character, as this person.
1: Oh yeah, because you know the scenes especially that take place in the city and, and she actually is the person who's been kidnapped or yeah, who's or been disappeared. And, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. And who's being tortured and right, exactly. who's being interrogated and and you have also, there's one sequence in which we don't hear any dialogue, but we hear the dentist's drill yeah. of her husband instead. And so I think in some ways we're also seeing the artistic process happening there too. Mm-hmm. We're seeing her learning how to connect with this character abstractly. We're seeing you know her using the, the pain that she felt when she was abused by her husband, bringing that into the character that she's playing as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's my very initial read. Again, I think there are a lot of layers, and I think there's some interesting things here. I I think there are some some places where there's some tangents that kind of don't quite bring us back to the film, and some places that maybe could have been pruned a little bit. But I think there's a an interesting kind of core to the film that oh, yeah, I agree is is really is really meaty, and and you see him. Struggling and angry, and you know he's angry about the assault that happened to his son. He's angry about a a nation that is unwilling to talk about the past. And there's this this rage that seems to be bubbling up from every pore of this film.
1: But I think also it shows a difficulty of Carlos Sora making a film about the creative process. And not being able to, to step back yeah. and see it as, is, is it a work of art he's creating? Or, And you see that in a lot of directors or other people who try to bring across the, the creative process. yeah. And that's got to be one of the hardest things for an artist to do. The artist mm-hmm. creates the art, but they, they can't explain the process. And I think in this case, Sora was trying to explain the process. Yeah
0: you know again talking through this with you i think i see more about yeah. the ways that amelia was attempting to connect i can see more of of how some of those sequences were working i think there are pieces that still don't quite fit for me but yeah it does leave me leave me curious to revisit it at some point
1: well, that happens a lot when you and I talk about a film, yeah. where I can go into it with one idea about how I feel about the film. Yeah. But in our talking, somehow there is an evolution in my feelings about a film, and that's happened in this case as well. Yeah. But if you want to, as you said before, we're seeing his evolution as bringing performance as part of the narrative. Hmm. Wait until you see Dulces Horas, which I think is yeah. on the channel as Sweet Hours. Yes. Sweet Hours, I think it's probably his best film. Well, it was leading to his flamenco films, of course, because that's all about performance. But in this, it shows, in that, in those cases, it's like dance into performance, dance into a performance, into a film. In this, you have a film director making a film about his past and using that as actually the narrative of him exploring his own memories. yeah. You
0: know? yeah. As I look at his filmography, the next film up in his filmography is Mama Turns 100. Yeah. Uh, then we've got De Prisa De Prisa. And then we've got Blood Wedding. And then we've got Sweet Hours. Sweet Hours. So, so that was this, that was
1: around the same time as his yeah. first flamenco film. Yeah.
0: And so we've got this kind of, this really interesting stretch here that I'll be really curious to, to talk a little bit more with you about, especially because mm-hmm. I think uh, De Prisa De Prisa is almost you know a, a neorealist it feels very you know, i think most of the people that he he worked with in that one were non-actors mm-hmm. and to move from that into the documentary blood wedding and
1: it's been a while since i've seen that I, I, in fact that's the oldest film i can think of of his that's that's on the channel it's been there since the days of yeah. hulu yeah. so it's been it maybe eight or nine years since i've seen it yeah. so it'd be interesting to to recheck on that
0: yeah so, yeah, it'll be fun. I think our next conversation on his films are going to be great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, have you decided which group we're doing? I know that Blood Wedding, of course, is, is a Studio Canal film that, that they've not gotten the license back yet. Oh, we yeah, no. Some, the, uh, the, next, Lico, yeah.
0: Yeah, the next ones that we've got, uh, our next two, uh, will be the last in our Carlos Sara. So, we'll be doing De Prisa, De Prisa and, and Sweet Hours. Oh, and then we could
1: just wrap up his career. Yeah. Yeah, Those yeah. in those films, those nine, ten ten. 11 films yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah so it'll be a uh, the the ending to the the Carlos Sara <laughs> conversation
1: oh yeah I want to mention something about in los Ojos Vendados, he how he yeah. uses sound again
0: oh yeah it, yeah
1: there's certain points where there's a narration it's a what do you call it speaking over the, the scene uh, it's off-stage narration mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you realize the camera goes to the actor and yes. they have been speaking they are yeah. actually narrating it to themselves, you know. Yeah. They're not actually directing it towards us like eye to eye, but
0: yeah. there's no one else
1: around, you know. So it's like it, it comes it becomes from narration, it becomes camera dialogue. Yeah. You know? it becomes and that direct happens
0: address kind of Yeah. Yeah.
1: That ha- that happens a few times in um in this last film.
0: Yeah. He's using some really interesting again more theatrical techniques. Mm which I find really fascinating. He's
1: really broadening his means of digesis, yeah. his way of telling the story. Yeah. Because starting back with something like our first film, La Casa, the hunt, that was pretty straightforward in him telling a yeah. story. But then with each successive film, we're seeing different ways he's experimenting, sometimes more successful than others in, yeah. in ways of, of narration.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Michael, this is always a pleasure to talk with you about these wow. films.
1: Oh, my goodness, I'm looking at the clock now. We, we, we really, this is going to be a long one for our patrons, I know.
0: Oh, I know. I know. This is good. This is good. It's been a while since I've recorded an episode. Oh, yeah. It was uh, great. I appreciate it. uh, Good to get get stuff in for them. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I do want to once again thank the Patreons for uh, supporting the show. Thank you again so much for everything that you're doing to to keep the show running. And I want to thank our Home Network Criterion cast as well for giving us a place to get the show out there for people. So thank you all. And, Michael, again, thank you for joining me. This has been a lovely conversation.
1: It has. Thank you, Josh.
0: Yeah. Where can people find you online?
1: I am on Letterboxd. Uh, Just look up Michael Hutchins, one word. I'm in uh, a lot of the Facebook groups, Criterion Now, Criterion Channel Club, of course, and uh, Criterion Completion. So look up any one of those.
0: Awesome. Thanks again, Michael. This has been great.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks. Great.
0: You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, Cinemacocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group, or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss on a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Criterioncast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at Criterioncast.com.